Hello and welcome to another episode of Her Head in Films. I'm Caitlin and I'm your host. On this podcast, I share my thoughts and feelings about the films that I watch. They tend to be art house and world cinema. What makes this podcast unique is that I weave together my life experiences with an in-depth and personal discussion of films. I explore the impact that cinema has on me and why I connect so deeply to it. As I like to say, my head isn't in the clouds, my head is in films. On today's episode, I'm talking about Michael Haneke's controversial and thought-provoked 1997 film Funny Games. It's a thriller that breaks all the rules and raises questions about the representation of violence in mass media. A family is terrorized in their vacation home by two young men who take enjoyment in brutality and degradation. Haneke uses surprising and unexpected techniques to confront the audience of his film and to make us think deeper and more critically about the violence and suffering we see in movies and television. This episode contains major spoilers. I go into everything about the film, so please be aware of that. If you'd like to support the work I'm doing, please consider becoming a patron on Patreon. You can access extra episodes, vote in polls, and much more. Go to patreon.com slash herheadinfilms for more information. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash her head in films. You can also review the podcast on iTunes. That really helps me. Please give me five stars on there. Tell your friends and followers about Her Head in Films, or you can follow me on social media and interact with me on there in a positive way. I'm on Facebook, Instagram, Tumblr, and Twitter. There are links to all my social media accounts in the show notes of each episode. So I won't go on. Here's my episode about Michael Haneke's 1997 film, Funny Games. So anybody who's a longtime listener knows that I love Michael Haneke. <laughs> I am a major, major fan of his. The most popular episode of this podcast for a while was my episode about his film, The Piano Teacher. For years, that was my most downloaded episode. And then I covered Bong Joon-ho's Memories of Murder shortly before he won the Oscar for Parasite. And now that has become my most popular episode right now as I record this. And then I think it might be Three Colors Blue by Krzysztof Kieślowski. I think that's number two. And then I think The Piano Teacher got bumped down to number three. But it seems like my audience and the people who listen to me like my Michael Haneke episodes for whatever reason. He is probably my favorite modern filmmaker, modern director. I mean, I'm not as plugged in to contemporary cinema as other people are. You know, I think a lot of people would say Bong Joon-ho or Wes Anderson or Sofia Coppola, you know. I think those are maybe other directors that people would mention talking about contemporary filmmakers. And for me, it would probably be Michael Haneke, the Dardan brothers... Andrea Arnold, Jane Campion. These are some of my favorite living directors. But Hanukkah just, I consider him like a living master. I consider him to just be such a fascinating director. I've seen many of his films, The Piano Teacher, um, Funny Games, obviously, Amour, The Seventh Continent that I had just recently watched and 
It's very haunting and powerful. Cachet is a really big one as well. Cachet I need to go back to. That is a fascinating film. I think it's probably one of his best. My favorite by him I think is The Piano Teacher. But I just did an episode about Amour and now I'm doing this episode about Funny Games. A couple of years ago I'll say I watched Funny Games and I watched Cachet. I think I watched them within the same week or within a couple of days of each other and I was uh, electrified by both of these films, obsessed with them, fascinated by them. As soon as I finished Cachet I wanted to watch it again. I never do that. I'm not a big uh, (laughs) re-watcher. Not immediately. I will rewatch films. I always rewatch films when I do episodes, but I tend to want like space in between the rewatch, whereas some people will rewatch a film immediately. I don't do that quite as much. It's very rare for me. I can only remember a few times when I watched Stanley Tucci and Campbell Scott's film Big Night. I love that film. That was one that as soon as I watched it, I watched it again. And I have an episode about it. And another one is called um, The Wimbledon Stage by Matthew Amoric or Amoric. I don't know how to say it. And that's a fascinating film he did with Jean Ballybar. And I watched that right. I think I watched that twice in one week. I love that film. It's you can't find it. It's not anywhere, but it's it's really rare. But it's a lovely film. It's fascinating. So I rarely rewatch stuff, but I did want to rewatch Cache, but I didn't. I need to go back to it. I think it's probably one of his best for sure. But when I watched Funny Games, this was one that like people had always talked about. Like, oh, all this stuff happens in it. You know, they talk to the camera and he winks and you rewind and all these things, you know? And I was like, okay, I want to watch it and I watched it and I was riveted and fascinated this past month or whatever I decided to go back to it and to talk about more Hanukkah because I think he has really big ideas in his work but at the same time I'm not like a really hyper intellectual person. Like this is not a philosophical podcast. I don't necessarily get into big philosophical or existential or whatever concepts, even though I do cover directors who are doing that, like Hanukkah, like Bergman and directors like that, where it there are really big ideas in some of these films and they are very like intellectual directors, right? I come from a different perspective. I'm more of an emotional film watcher. So when I talk about Hanukkah, I'll talk more about emotional stuff, but also the intellectual things as well. I like both. So why am I into Hanukkah? If any of you sort of know me or you follow me on social media, I'm a very like soft-hearted, <laughs> innocent, tender, emotional person, you would not think that I would be sitting here watching The Piano Teacher, okay? Like, you just wouldn't think that about me, that I would be watching funny games. But I am drawn to violence. I'm drawn to films about violence. I like films that are what I would call brutal, devastating, bleak, intense, all of it. Because when I go to films, I want like a really intense experience. I want emotional intensity when I watch a film. 
So I tend to go to films that are very serious, very heavy, very dark, sometimes disturbing. I would say some of Hanukkah's work is disturbing. It unsettles you, it disturbs you, it haunts you. But I also just think that he's asking really big questions in his work. I would say Funny Games, The Seventh Continent, Amour, The Piano Teacher, uh, Cachet, he's asking big questions about violence and about suffering and about modern society all together in the melting pot of his cinema. And I find those topics fascinating myself. You know, I like I said, I'm, a, I'm drawn to extreme films. I really am. That includes Ingmar Bergman. That includes Michael Haneke. You know, just films that are really intense and heavy and yeah, I am. It's it's the truth. I think the most intense film that I, I've ever seen is one I have an episode about and it's called Come and See by Elam Klimov. And I think it's one of the greatest films ever made, probably the greatest anti-war film ever made. And it's one of the few films where by the end of it, I did feel like physically sick by that film. It deeply affected me. It affects me every time I watch it. I've seen it about three times. And I'm not someone who's squeamish when it comes to these films. But when I saw Come and See, oh, I find the piano teacher to be deeply devastating as well. And I have an episode about that. I think the way that film looks at violence is like so intense. And it's not just about physical violence. It's about emotional violence, about the emotional violence of trusting somebody, opening up to somebody, sharing the darkest parts of yourself with somebody, and that not really working out. I don't want to go into too many details about the film. I just, I don't know how Hanukkah does it. I don't know how he does it at all. But I'm drawn to his work because I'm drawn to violence and suffering and devastation and extreme emotional states. And that's what you find in Funny Games and The Piano Teacher and all of these films, for sure. I think in some way for myself, I've wanted to understand violence. Even though it's never been perpetrated against me or my body, thank God, I've been spared that kind of physical violation. I have not experienced any kind of physical or sexual violence in my life. I'm very lucky um, as a woman to be able to say that. But I do think that even though I haven't experienced violence in that way, I'm just compelled by the subject of it and the topic and why why there's violence, how people can do things to one another. And I know Funny Games, Funny Games is like, it's a complicated, fascinating film, but I do think it's digging into some of that evil and violence and suffering and all these things. And I guess that's why I was also drawn to it. Because I think that the way that Hanukkah is doing the film, breaking the fourth wall, the rewind, all this stuff. He's asking us as an audience. He's implicating us as an audience, as viewers. And I do think he's asking us to consider, contemplate, reflect on why we watch violent films, why we watch media that is violent and that shows people harming each other and what we get out of that and what happens when violence is turned into entertainment and the implications of that in our everyday lives and in the way that we relate to one another just the way that we think about violence and suffering so that's what makes funny games even more compelling to me is that it's not just a film about violence about 
how violence is represented in cinema and in media right and what responsibility does a filmmaker have what responsibility does the audience have when we enter into this contract of watching a film we expect certain things and what happens when the rules are broken and what happens when um when we have to stop and think about the fact that we're watching a film and we've chosen to watch something this violent and this horrific and we don't walk out and we don't stop it we keep watching What does that mean for us to keep watching? What do we get out of it? What do we want out of it? I think funny games, I'm, I can only speak from, for myself when I watch this film. Every episode I do is my subjectivity, my interpretation, but it's one of the few films that has made me sit and think, why am I watching this? Why am I watching this violence, this suffering, this degradation, this devastation? Why? And it makes you think about your own motivations. And I'm not saying that Hanukkah is condemning us necessarily or judging us. I think we can go to these films for a lot of different reasons. But I do think we can acknowledge that the majority of like people who go to a mainstream violent film, they're maybe not going to be quite as reflective or thoughtful as maybe a cinephile might be. You know, they're going for the pleasure of it, for the enjoyment the entertainment of this violence. That's sort of the audience that needs to be reached in a way. An audience that hasn't really thought about these questions. And I think Hanukkah is trying to get us to think about these things. Maybe not everybody will. But it was one of the few films I watched where I felt uncomfortable. And I was reflecting more about like my experience of the film and why I am watching it at all and things like that. And I'll talk more about that as I get into the film. I think what's so important about Hanukkah is the focus on violence. Not every director's interested in that. You know, a lot of directors use violence in their films for the entertainment value, for whatever reason to advance the plot, but they're not necessarily raising questions about violence or asking, like, what does it mean that we have such easy access to violence in our everyday lives now? It's a click away. I mean, Funny Games was made in 1997 when it was really just like television and video games and the movie theater. That's where you were going to see violent images, right? Maybe magazines. Yeah. Today, I mean, I actually think Funny Games is maybe more relevant now because of the easy access to violence. And and that's through the internet. I mean, the internet has become a portal to violent imagery in every form, whether it's video footage or like camera phone footage of a mass shooting or it's crime scene photos or it's violent pornography that's very degrading to women like violence pervades our lives in really profound ways now it saturates our lives and at the same time we're removed from it that's the weird contradiction it's on a screen Our life is dominated by screens. And I would argue that a lot of Hanukkah's films are about interrogating, critiquing, exploring our relationship to screens. He was doing this back in like the late 80s and in the 90s. In the late 80s, he did The Seventh Continent, which is a really intense, haunting film. It was his debut feature film. Definitely recommend it. 
it has stayed with me. And he's always critiquing modern society. He's always critiquing the West and capitalist society in a lot of ways. But in 89, he does The Seventh Continent, and a lot of scenes in that film feature the television screen and how we get wrapped up in television. He did Benny's video, I haven't seen that one, about video games, I think. He does funny games, which absolutely is about, like, I mean, there's screens in, I'm sure there's screens in Benny's video, and there's screens in funny games with the television and stuff like that. Oh, another film of his that I've seen is The White Ribbon. I forgot to mention, I always forget The White Ribbon. And then Cache is also, it also features screens because um, there's video, there's a video in that one. All of these films, he's looking at our relationship to screens, whether it's a television screen, you know, and whether you're watching TV or a movie or you're playing a video game on it. It's just fascinating to me because I find that even more relevant nowadays with the internet and our access to violence. And so I do think these questions matter. I think it is important to ask ourselves, why do we consume violence? Does it desensitize us? Does it dehumanize the subjects of that violence in that work of art? Or does it not? Are there certain art forms that when they show violence, like Hanukkah does, that he's resensitizing us? And then there's maybe other directors who are desensitizing us. It depends on how you're approaching the subject, right? We're always watching things on screens. So it's always happening to someone else instead of us. That's what happens with screens. That's what happens with a computer screen, a cell phone screen, a television screen, a movie screen, right? You're watching something happen to another person and you're separate from it, not with funny games. You're no longer separate from what's happening on the screen. Um, You're implicated. You're involved through the breaking of that fourth wall. When Paul looks back at us and winks, When he does the remote and he rewinds things, you are made aware that you're watching a film and that you're a viewer of that film. And so that's what Hanukkah does. He reminds us that we're looking at something, right? That we're watching something. That in a way we're voyeurs. I mean, I do feel like I'm a very voyeuristic person through cinema, through these cell phone screens. I am voyeuristic. I am consuming other people's lives. I think in the process, we can we can become estranged and disconnected from our own lives and from our own reality because these films and these TV shows and these video games and these videos on Instagram and social media are creating a reality that we are consuming and that then affects our own reality. And how does consuming violent imagery, how does that shape our reality? And I think that's an important question to ask. And I think that when you have to look at yourself as a consumer, as a watcher, a viewer, an audience member, you have to think about these things. And so I feel like that's what Hanukkah's work does, like particularly with funny games, like making us think about it, making us stop. And that's why he uses those things throughout the film. It's not gimmicky. I think some people would call it gimmicky. I don't think it's a gimmick. I think it's used to wake us up for a minute, to startle us, to jolt us, to make us realize, oh, we're watching a film. 
Why are we watching this? What do we expect from this? What do we want from it? What's going on here? The relationship between you and the film comes into focus and gets exposed and all of that. And Hanukkah talked in an interview, I definitely recommend the Criterion Collection edition of Funny Games, of course. There's really great material and my favorite thing on it that I watched was just this one-on-one interview with Hanukkah where he was just talking about the film, talking about his motivations, how it took many years for him to write it. And in that interview, he talked about how he got the idea for that, like to break the fourth wall because he was watching a film like 20 years before he made 20 years before he made funny games he was watching a film I think called Tom Jones or something and in the middle of that film the person on the screen looks at the audience like looks at the camera and it just kind of startled him (laughs) and shocked him when it happened and so that was how he got the idea to incorporate that into the film. I I love Hanukkah's interviews. I love watching him talk about his films and and all of that. I don't think it's gimmicky. I think some people would say it is but I don't think it is. I made this argument in my episode about a more but I'll make it again here in case people haven't listened to that episode. I do think Hanukkah gets a reputation of being like really bleak and dark and brutal and yeah he is yeah the the subjects of his films are very brutal you know murder and violence and self-harm and there's all kinds of violence and horror and stuff in his cinema I'm not gonna deny that and I'm not gonna say that he's a light filmmaker or something he's heavy And he's not something that I'm always in the mood for. But I do go back to his work because of the way that it makes me think and question things and interrogate things. I think personally, there is like a deep humanity in his films. I don't think he gets enough credit for the humanity of his work. And it's even in funny games in the way that he films certain scenes. And I'll talk about that later. A a good example would be when the son dies, when he's murdered. Hanukkah doesn't show it. He doesn't show that murder. He doesn't go there. Or the moment when the mother, uh, Anna, is stripping and has to take her clothes off. He does not show her nude body. He makes certain choices in the film that are humane to me. I think the very fact that he over and over and over again goes back to the subjects of violence and suffering, I think that in itself makes him a humane director for me. Because I don't think you interrogate violence or the representation of violence because you're just some cold-hearted bastard who doesn't care about anybody. Hanukkah never makes violence into something titillating or sexy or entertaining or enjoyable or pleasurable. That is not the kind of director that he is. He's not using violence to entertain you or to turn you on. He's looking at violence in a more complex way like a more nuanced way. And it's about the very real consequences and trauma of violence on people's lives who suffer from it, who have it inflicted upon them, which is what we see in funny games. We're watching a family be terrorized. We're watching a family's brutalization. Why are we watching that? Why is Hanukkah filming it? That's, those are the questions of the film. 
Why are we watching it? Why does the film even exist? What is he trying to say here with this film? But I think that you don't make films about violence and suffering and all of this stuff if you don't care about people and you don't care about the consequences of violence and the consequences of its representation and how we see it and how we can get desensitized to it to the point where we accept it or we get turned on by it or we find it exciting. And that's disturbing. I think Hanukkah is disturbed by that. He is disturbed by violence being seen as entertainment. That's why he made film this, this film, I think. This is my interpretation. He thinks there is something deeply disturbing about watching violence and not being horrified by it or, or just um, turned off by it and disturbed by it, but instead enjoying it. That's disturbing. The way that the men in the film, the criminals, Paul and Peter, the way that they enjoy and take pleasure in the violence that they inflict. And so when you're an audience member and you're watching a film and you're enjoying the violence or it's entertaining to you, in a way you've become like Peter and Paul because you're enjoying this violence that's in front of you. That's unsettling and disturbing, I think, to Hanukkah and to me. I don't think we should enjoy violence. (laughs) At the same time, I do watch violent films, but I'm not saying that I enjoy those films. I go to those films more for various reasons. I guess trying to understand the violence and just different things like that. I mean, I'm not going to go into it right this moment, but um, I think he is a humane director because of that, because he wants to talk about these issues and the suffering that people experience. You feel for this family and you care about what's happening to them. And Hanukkah makes you care. I mean, violence and suffering, I mean, violence at the end of the day, it destroys lives. It destroys communities. It traumatizes people. It harms all of us. The violence in our societies, it does so much damage. And so it is disturbing to me that it would ever be entertaining to people. But when we go to a thriller, we go to a suspenseful film, that's what's unsettling about it is that the violence and the terror that's being inflicted on these characters that's what's part of the excitement of the film so that's like that's kind of the conflict I think that we can have as an audience this film hurts Hanukkah's films hurt they're supposed to he wants to hurt you I think he said that in an interview like he wants this film to hurt I think funny games it breaks all the rules And it ends up exposing the existence of those roles. Like he said in an interview, usually when you go to see a thriller, they're not going to kill an animal. Well, a dog gets killed in this film. They're not going to kill a child. The child dies and is killed halfway through the film. And usually at the end of the film, the people, the victims triumph. They do not get killed. Well, with this film... The father is shot and the mother is thrown overboard. It's a brutal film in that way where there is no hope. There is no silver lining at the end of this tunnel. And I think with American audiences in particular, when we go to watch thrillers and stuff like that, we go into it expecting certain things. And we expect that at the end of the film, 
the good guy, the good woman, the good people are going to triumph and the evil people, the bad people, the villains are going to fail and they're going to be vanquished and they're going to be destroyed. That's what we expect, that good will prevail over evil. That's the American mythos or mythos. That is what we expect when we go to certain like mainstream, I guess, American films and blockbusters. Good will win over evil. And Hanukkah's like, no, (laughs) that's not reality. That's not true. Often evil triumphs over good. That's why the film hurts. (laughs) That's why it's brutal is because he doesn't, he gives us reality. He doesn't give us like what we dream about or we hope for. The good guys are going to win. And unfortunately, that whole structure of American films makes the violence more palatable and it makes it more tolerable to us because we can stomach that violence as long as we know the good guys are going to win. It, it doesn't implicate us at all. Well, Hanukkah is like, nope, you're going to have to sit with this. <laughs> like the child's going to die. The dog is going to die. The whole family's going to die. And you're not going to get your happy little ending, your little b- bow on top that you're used to. You're going to get reality. You're going to get the truth because there have been home invasions. There have been entire families murdered and this happens. People are violated and harmed and, and hurt every day. They don't triumph. You know, they don't get the shotgun and shoot the killer and triumph over the evil or the bad guy or the villain. Life is not like that. We want it to be. We want our happy ending here in America in particular, but that's not what Hanukkah's going to give you. And I do feel like his films are like an anti-escape. <laughs> like they're not about getting away from life or getting away from reality, but confronting it. And in this film, he doesn't give us the safety and comfort of escaping into the story even because we're always reminded that we're watching a film so this is not escapism this is anti-escapism this is reality more that's also what makes it brutal with Hanukkah like it's not an escape when you're watching funny games you realize oh I'm choosing to see a film in which people are being victimized and harmed the film cannot exist without their degradation and their violation. That's why you go to see a thriller because someone is being hurt and violated. And the suspense of that is what keeps you watching. Like what's going to happen next? What horrible thing will happen next? And there's something really kind of disturbing about that if you stop and think about it. And yet I still watch thrillers and I watch a lot of true crime and stuff like that. You know, you're watching this family being terrorized and you've chosen that. You've chosen to watch a family being terrorized. If the two guys weren't terrorizing the family, there wouldn't be a film and there wouldn't be a thriller. That's what Hanukkah is getting at, right? It's like this violence exists because you asked for it, because you wanted it. And why do you want it? Why are you watching it? Why are you doing that? He's not saying that explicitly. He's not like, he's not like doing his finger at you. Like, oh, you little... (laughs) you perverted, depraved piece of shit. (laughs) Why are you watching this film? It's not that like didactic or something. But I do think as you're watching it, you realize, why am I watching this? And the film wouldn't exist without the terror and the brutalization and the violence that you have asked for as an audience. And that you expect when you go to the movie theater or you stream the film and watch it. 
And I wanted to share a few quotes by Hanukkah from some interviews, and then I'll get into the film itself. So he had this interview in 1998. I, I read this really good book called Michael Hanukkah Interviews, and it's the most recent edition of the book. And it, he has interviews about all his films from the beginning to his most recent as I'm recording. And he says, quote, through funny games, I tried to clear a path to lead the viewer directly into the game and make him understand his own responsibility for the violence that he's seeing on the screen. The idea for Funny Games also came to me after reading stories in the newspapers. Several young people who had committed very violent acts were asked why they had done it. They always answered that they did it to see what it was like, unquote. When I read that, it reminded me of a true crime story that I've been fascinated by for years about Loeb and Leopold, which were these two young men in the 1920s who murdered a little boy. And they claimed that they did it because they wanted to know what it felt like and that they did it for the thrill of it. There's actually a book about the case called For the Thrill of It, I think. And this case always fascinated me. There's also like a PBS American Masters or no, there's a PBS American Experience episode about it, I think. They had a fascinating relationship, Loeb and Leopold. They wanted to know what the power what the power felt like to kill somebody. They just wanted to have the experience of taking another life. Like uh, supposedly this was what they wanted. It's just, it's a fascinating case. It's very interesting. I was reminded of Loeb and Leopold when I watched Funny Games because again, it's about two young men and they're enjoying the violence that they're committing. They're kind of doing it for the thrill for the enjoyment, for how it makes them feel. And it gives them, you know, it gives them pleasure to inflict this pain. And so I think Hanukkah is interested in that question too. What about people who commit these acts of violence? It's one thing to murder in a moment of passion or because you lose your mind or something sets you off in the moment or something. It's very different when people murder because they plan it out and it's premeditated or a serial killer or someone who is doing violence and rape and murder and these very violent crimes because they enjoy it and they want to do it, not because they're in a moment of extreme emotion or something like that. And I think Hanukkah is more interested in that kind of violence that's like, planned and premeditated and intentional intentional with the the person the perpetrator getting something out of it and he says quote if audiences didn't express the desire to see violent films there wouldn't be any on the screens it's very ambiguous two sides of the same coin it's the principle of the chicken and the egg who came first without this act of collaboration horror films or violent action films wouldn't work, unquote. And he also says, quote, I'm not condemning anyone. I don't have the right. I simply work to make people, society aware of certain things. Sometimes people respond to my film by asking, don't you think that man has a very deep desire to witness the spectacle of violence? Obviously, this desire to watch pain exists, unquote. I think that's interesting as well. He's like, he's saying, I'm not condemning anybody. I'm not judging people necessarily, but I do think that the role of an artist or a filmmaker can be, you know, one of the roles can be 
to raise these questions, to ask these questions, right? And to make us think about something. And so I think in that way, Hanukkah is such a great director because he makes us think. And he goes on, quote, very few of us have truly suffered from violence, really very few. Yet television gives the opposite impression. That's how the media guts our existence of all reality. The real danger is that young people will reenact this violence just to see what it's like, as they say, quote unquote. And he goes on, quote, death, violence, and pain are extremely difficult and trying ordeals for a person, the most difficult that exist. When you dramatize them by wrapping them up in a nice, pleasing package, that becomes a question of the writer-director's irresponsibility. It's all the more serious since our society is becoming more and more violent and more and more harsh. All artists have a moral responsibility to the society in which they live, a responsibility to human beings. We can't make violence and pain a game that people get pleasure from. The only film about violence that I can accept, even more than A Clockwork Orange, which people often talk to me about, is Sallow or The 120 Days of Sodom by Pasolini. An unbearable film, intolerable, but it shows things as they really are without prettifying them at all. The film inflicts pain because violence inflicts pain, unquote. So I do think in this interview, Hannock is being very explicit that he does think the director has a moral responsibility. And I think some people would disagree with that or they would find that controversial, which I understand. I I think some people would say no. Directors or artists don't have moral responsibilities. I think Hanukkah is saying if you're going to put violence in your film or there's going to be death and suffering and really horrific things in your film, that you have a responsibility in the way that you represent those things. If you're going to put rape in your film, if you're going to put murder, if you're going to put whatever form of violence in a film, it matters the way that you represent it and the way that you show it and that you should think long and hard about it and that you should care. You should care about how you're representing that and that you're making sure to not make it entertaining. And that's what Hanukkah believes. And people can are free to disagree with it. I don't. I do agree with him. Absolutely, I agree with him. I'm just going to come out and say it. I absolutely agree with it. I am very selective about the directors I will watch when it comes to violence, when it comes to these films. I want responsible directors like Bergman, like Hanukkah, like Steve McQueen in a film like Shame or Hunger. Yeah, I think those are directors who are engaging with suffering and violence in responsible ways, in complex and thoughtful ways for me personally. Or Elam Klimov with Come and See in the way that he represented violence in that film. I definitely agree with Hanukkah. And I love how Hanukkah wants to look at the manipulation of film. I think that's fascinating. Like here is a filmmaker who's talking about how film can manipulate us, how it can construct our reality. Like I just think that's totally fascinating. That's something that I like about funny games is that we're we're constantly reminded that we're watching a film, that we're being manipulated by a film, that the director has this power, right? Like the director has this power to, to determine what we see and what we think. And it's fascinating to me, that relationship. It makes us think about the artifice 
of film, how it's this thing that's very manufactured. This is a fascinating thing to me about art in general, particularly with like books and films. These are not, especially when you're talking about fiction, you know that they're not real. You know you're watching a film, you know you're reading a novel, but it still can affect us in really deep and powerful ways and can engross us. And we suspend that disbelief and we get wrapped up in what we're experiencing and it can feel very real to us, but it's not. It's not real, but it feels real. Do you get what I mean? And it makes me think about David Lynch's film Mulholland Drive, which I saw a few months ago and absolutely loved. I don't know if I would ever do an episode. <laughs> I feel so intimidated by that film and by like the cult of David Lynch, but I love that film. Absolutely. And I'm really glad that I watched it. That film is about Hollywood, right? And about how the dream factory works how films get made. It definitely, I think, Mulholland Drive exposes the artifice of cinema. But I also think that Mulholland Drive reminds us of its amazing emotional power in our lives as well. That's where the conflict is for me. It's like, I know that cinema is manipulative. <laughs> like, I know that it's not real. And Funny Games is similar in that way of reminding us that like, you're watching a film. You're watching something that's totally manufactured, right? But how can something that isn't real affect us so deeply? That's the thing. I think cinema, yeah, it can desensitize us. I think some of the mainstream cinema, the mainstream films that just make um, violence into a spectacle and eroticize rape and do all kinds of irresponsible shit that like that affects us. And that affects millions of people who go and see those films. And I do think it can be desensitizing, right? But on the other hand, I'm a cinephile and I love film. And I think that film and all art forms, including books and music and all of it, they it also has the power to give us empathy and compassion and to make us feel for other people. So it can that's the interesting sort of double-edged sword of art, I guess, in a film in particular, is that it has the power to dehumanize and desensitize, but it also has the power to remind us of our compassion, remind us of our connection to other people. And it can reconnect us with our humanity, I think, and give us that empathy. And, you know, for an hour and a half or two hours, you're in another person's world. You're in another perspective. You're in somebody else's shoes. And I think that can be really powerful. So I believe that Hanukkah is using the medium of film. Yeah, it's a manipulative media for sure when it's in the wrong hands. But when it's in the right hands, when it's in Hanukkah's hands, <laughs> the tender hands of Michael Hanukkah, <laughs> when it's in his hands, it can be something very like ferocious and deep and substantial. I think his work, like I said, I think it's humane, but it's also brutal. But what I think some of these films can do is jolt us awake. They can remind us of the horror of violence. That's what Funny Games does for me. Funny Games doesn't make violence into a spectacle. It reminds me of the horror of it. When I am watching some of these scenes, I am like horrified. That the blood on the television screen, Suzanne Lothar's face at times when she's crying and there's snot coming out of her nose and she's terrified. Ulrich Muha um, crying over the death of his son. You feel that. 
you feel things when you watch this film. Do you laugh at the film? Yeah, like there are really funny moments in funny games, right? But you also feel for these characters and he never, to me, makes the violence into entertainment or spectacle. If anything, he is against that and he's asking us as viewers, I think, to be more critical of what we are watching. To be critical of films that do turn it in to spectacle because he could have shown Anna taking her clothes off and he could have eroticized that moment and shown a naked woman's body right and he didn't do it he showed her face he could have shown the the um the little boy having his head blown off he didn't do it he held back he reminds us that other directors don't do that other directors would show it they would show it. They would show that little boy being killed. They would show her taking her clothes off. And then they're engaging in spectacle. They're desensitizing us when they do that. And I think Hanukkah's work resensitizes us. It reminds us of the horror of these violent acts, the horror of death, the horror of suffering. I'm a Hanukkah fangirl. <laughs> I am a Michael Hanukkah fangirl. These are all my interpretations. I have no idea what other people will think. And something that's powerful about the film is that um, it shows the pleasure that these men take in violence and how violence and pleasure often become bound together for men. And this is something that feminists talk about. This is something that I think about a lot, actually. The way that men have come to see violence as something enjoyable and pleasurable in their lives. It's a part of, I think, the toxic masculinity and stuff that is, and, and just living in a patriarchal world, it's a part of patriarchy in a lot of ways, is to make violence something pleasurable. And that's what Hanukkah shows, th shows these men enjoying the violence. When people are doing it, I think it reminds us that like, there are men like this. There are men who rape and murder for pleasure. They get something out of it or they wouldn't do it. Those, that's the point of the games in the film. So I think Hanukkah does make the film even scarier and, or, and unsettling by showing these men enjoying the violence and the carnage. That actually feels more real to me, like more likely. Would they feel bad? No. Why would they feel remorse about what they're doing? If they felt remorse, then they wouldn't be doing it. They have the power and they like it. That's what Hanukkah shows, is that violence is can also connected to power, and that there is pleasure in power, and that men enjoy it. These men who commit this kind of violence. In an interview, Hanukkah said, um, and I think this is... This is the interview from the Criterion Edition. He says, quote, In reality, the villain is truly villainous. He enjoys the fact that others are, su are suffering. That's what makes it so unbearable. It's usually made more bearable by having the villain demonstrate compassion for the audience's sake. What makes this film so harsh is the fact that these two guys are simply having fun. They amuse themselves with the lives and suffering of other people the same way little boys tear the legs or wings off a fly. It's the same kind of innocent pleasure in evil, unquote. I see a little bit of like a critique of masculinity in the film. I don't know if other people see that or pick up on it, but I see that in the film. Like a critique of masculinity, a critique of the way that men and boys enjoy violence. And I do think the film is partially about evil, about what it looks like, what it, how it manifests 
evil can look like two normal, upper-class, wealthy young men who are bored and have nothing better to do and they just want to inflict pain on people. Evil can look like that. There's not always a big grand explanation for it. I think we're more unsettled and horrified by evil that wears a smile, that feels no remorse, that takes almost orgasmic pleasure in inflicting pain on other people and doesn't regret it one bit. If anything, these guys would keep doing it if they could. And a lot of the men who get caught, you know, the serial killers who get caught, they keep fantasizing about the violence they've already committed. And they would have kept doing it as long as they could, but they just happened to get caught. Somebody like Ted Bundy, for instance. That's true horror. You know, not just the man who murders, but the man who murders and laughs in his victim's faces and loves every moment of what he's doing. And a lot of times American cinema doesn't want to show that. It doesn't want to show that pleasure. And so I think by Hanukkah showing it, I think that's fascinating and important. I think it's important. You know, that's what we don't want to face about some of this violence is that the people who do it enjoy it. And they're not sorry at all. They're not sorry at all. That's why they do it. They like the power and they like the pleasure that they get from it. I think it's interesting that when this film was shown at Cannes, it didn't win anything. But the showing was very intense. And some people either loved the film or they hated it. Hanukkah calls those moments when um, Paul talks to the camera. He calls them like little ruptures. And there are these moments when the contract between the filmmaker and the audience is broken. And there are all these little ruptures, not just when Paul, you know, speaks to the camera, but when things happen that break the rules, like the death of the son or um, the death of the dog, stuff like that. These rules are broken over and over again. And I like that. They are these ruptures in the film. And I also wanted to mention that three out of the four leads in the film are now dead. Ulrich Muha is dead, Suzanne Lothar, and Frank Gehring, who played uh, Peter. So... I'm going to get into some scenes and stuff like that. I know, I I feel like this episode is a little disorganized and kind of all over the place, but you'll have to forgive me for that. I just don't always have a lot of time. I have a lot going on in my life and I'm doing my best with the episode, but I know my preamble was kind of long. I just wanted to talk about some overarching things about the film at first, things that I found compelling, and then I kind of wanted to talk more about certain scenes in the film specifically. So it got kind of (laughs) long, the other stuff. You know, I just think that Hanukkah is just doing so much in this film. Like it's a hard film to talk about because he's just doing so much. (laughs) And it can be an overwhelming film in that way. And at the end of the day, it's just funny. Like it's a funny film. And it's fascinating because of that. So I just want to talk about the cast. Ulrich Mua is Georg, the father. And I love Muha. He's in a really great film that I have an episode about called The Lives of Others. And he gives a tremendous performance in that film. Like, I love that film. Definitely recommend it. Suzanne Lothar is Anna, the mother. Arno Frisch is Paul. He's really the main villain of the film. And his shorts were entirely too short for me. (laughs) I'm sorry, (laughs) y'all. I was really uncomfortable with his shorts and I felt like at any moment I was going to see more of that man's body than I ever wanted to see. (laughs) He has very thin legs too. It's like the skinniest legs, but those shorts were frighteningly small and short. (laughs) 
I am not one of these people that wants us to go back to the days of men wearing really short shorts. I don't think I'm an advocate of that. <laughs> but Paul is the one in the short shorts. <laughs> and um, Frank Gehring is Peter. So three out of the four people of this main cast are dead now. Um, Mua had cancer. Lo Suzanne Lothar committed suicide. And it's not totally clear what Frank Gehring died of, but he wasn't even 40 years old. And Hanukkah in his interview with the Criterion Edition talks about his sadness about that, that he loved these actors. He particularly loved Ulrich and Suzanne. He used them in a few of his films. And I think their performances are just stunning and like a master class. So the film begins with the family going to their vacation home and it really starts out as your average thriller and what you would expect. Everything's fine and dandy. They're going to their vacation rental. They've got their opera music playing and we realize that this is a very wealthy family right? Very nice house, gated house. You know, their little, little, little Georg is in the back seat and it's all great. You know, it starts off so well and then they're going to walk into a nightmare. That's how these thrillers unfold. And I found it really interesting that the home itself is gated. It's not going to protect them, right? You can't really protect yourself from evil. Or bad things. I don't really believe you can. I think uh, most of our protections are like illusory and very false. I'm reminded I really need to go back to this film but I really like a film called No Country for Old Men and I'm sure many of you have seen it. I saw it when it came out like years ago. A while back I had an obsession with Cormac McCarthy <laughs> and I was I read a few of his novels. I, I really liked The Road but I read some Cormac McCarthy and I ended up watching No Country for Old Men I'm fascinated by that film and I want to go back to it, but the Javier Bardem character fascinates me because I see him as like the embodiment of evil, of the relentless, unstoppable force of evil that there's nothing you can do. There is nothing you can do. You can try. You can put up all your defenses, but it's going to break right through. And that evil is usually going to triumph. So they have this gate up and it actually works against them because later on in the film when the little boy tries to get out of the compound, he can't get over the gate. It blocks him in, you know, and then he has to go through the water. And But this gate that is supposed to protect them is what really imprisons them and locks them in. And also the film's interesting because of technology was different with phones. Like nowadays you'd have like a cell phone or something. They only had a cordless phone and once it was dropped in the water, all bets were off. So they're isolated partially because of that gate. And then they're isolated in terms of their ability to even communicate with the outside world. And you could only really do that in the 90s or early 2000s. Nowadays, you'd have to find a way to make sure they didn't have cell phones or something. And I did forget to mention that there's a remake of this film made in 2007 with an American cast, but it's basically a shot-for-shot -shot remake. And Naomi Watts um, plays the mother. Speaking of Mulholland Drive, <laughs> Naomi Watts is in the remake. I have not seen the remake. Some people seem to like it. Some people think it was unnecessary. Some people may want to see it. I do think Naomi Watts's performance is very different from Suzanne Lothar's. They play the mother in different ways from what I've heard. So it might be worth seeking out. You know, some people might be interested in it. I don't know if it did very well. 
Um, I don't know what the critical consensus is about it. I, I tend to not want to see English remakes of films, of, of foreign films. I try to stay away from them as much as possible. <laughs> Personally, I prefer the original. I think the original is the best. But Hanukkah had his reasons for making it. Maybe he wanted to try to like connect with American audiences, say something about American culture, American society. Whereas in the original Funny Games, he's talking about Austrian society because this takes place in Austria. But yeah, that gate is not going to help them. It's not going to help them at all. And so what's fascinating also about this film to me is the early scene with the eggs. It goes on a really long time. There are several scenes in the film that go on for really long periods of time. One of them is the egg scene and another is like in the middle after the son is killed. That scene seems to last a really long time when the mother and father are left in the living room. She's trying to help him up. Like a lot of scenes in the film last for a while. When Anna's in the kitchen and Peter comes and he wants the eggs and then he drops them and then she is, then he drops the phone in the water. He pushes the phone into the water. It's so mundane. Like there's a monotony or something or ordinariness about the scene, but it's also very sinister because certain things are being set up. Cutting off the, the communication. His ability to even get into the house. He's there. She's already kind of lost in that way. Like he's in the house. She gradually becomes more and more frustrated. I think from the beginning she's suspicious. From the beginning she's very annoyed with him. Starts to feel like something is off and she picks up on it much earlier than Georg does. He, he doesn't really understand what in the world is going on by the time he shows up. By the time he's there, Paul and Peter are both there. Anna has gotten completely exasperated with the situation and is starting to get worried and unsettled by what's happening and very uncomfortable and she just wants them to leave. And I think what's haunting to me about the scene, like I found myself after I watched the film thinking about that scene for the last few years. Something that the film for me captures, first of all, let me say is like home invasion is a big big fear of mine like I have a visceral terror of that I watched a HBO documentary called the Cheshire murders that was about the these two men that went and did a home invasion and terrorized a family and ended up killing two daughters and the mother and the father survived it and it was really horrific. It's a, it's a very difficult documentary to watch. But when I was watching Funny Games, I was reminded of it. And I was reminded of how the, this happens. Families are terrorized. There are home invasions. It's a big fear of mine. It's something that scares me a lot. What was interesting to me about this opening scene with the eggs that, that kind of stayed with me for years after I saw Funny Games was the way the scene escalated and how it felt so real and so ordinary ordinary, the way that an interaction with somebody can start out so normal and then a switch is flipped and it becomes frightening, scary, and sinister. Like it just happens immediately and how difficult it is for people or for the characters, at least in the scene, to grasp and comprehend what's happening because there's literally no way to comprehend it. How you go from giving somebody some eggs to being 
attacked with a golf club and your this nightmare begins. There was just something haunting about that part of the film to me of how she's just in her kitchen cutting some meat, right? And somebody shows up the shows up at the door for some eggs and slowly but surely something so ordinary turns into something horrific. And it takes a long time for the characters to process it and to understand that their reality and the rules of their lives, the rules of reality are now broken. And that now they are involved in something that threatens their very lives. That they went from driving to their vacation home to now confronting their own mortality and their own murder. And within a few hours, their son is dead. She's thrown overboard and he's shot. And it's like, I I can't explain it to you. It's just like, this is what happens in real life when violence happens to people is one minute life is okay and normal and everything's all right. And then the next, all the rules are broken and you've entered into this world of violence and horror and pain and suffering that you can't even comprehend and you can't even process in the moment as it's happening. And the film made me think about that. She just wants to give him the eggs and him go away and he's not going to go away and things will never be the same again. And there was just something disturbing and unsettling for me to think about that of how your life so quickly can fall apart and can go from a normal ordinary day to something horrific and traumatic that you'll never recover from. And what is like horrific to them is a game to these young men. And they, they mentioned that the, the funny game of the title it shows up when the dog, the dog comes around and it wants to play a game. And I think it's uh, Peter or something says funny game. Like the dog wants to play some kind of funny game. And what's happening really is that the, the killers are playing a game and they're playing with these people's lives. These people's lives are the game. And that's... That's what a murderer does. That's what a killer does. It's it's a game that they always win because they make the rules. They have the upper hand. They have the power. It's really a game of power. That's what unfolds in the film is this game of power. The men have the, the killers have the power. The family doesn't. This is also like a really terrifying look at complete helplessness and powerlessness. Like that I think is what's so traumatic about violence is that you lack any power over your life or your body. And somebody takes that from you and rips it away from you. And that's also what I felt in the film. And that's what we are, we are watching unfold is that these, this family has no power. They are completely helpless. Georg gets hit in the leg. He's really emasculated in a lot of ways in the film. He can't protect his wife. He can't protect his son. He is rendered just... He's debilitated. He's rendered useless. And the mother does what she can, but they're powerless. They are totally powerless. And I think a lot of us don't really know what that feels like to be that helpless in our own lives. And it is a terrifying feeling, I think. Terrifying. And that's what we see with this family. They are stripped. They are completely stripped of power, of dignity, of anything. But also we as the audience, we are enjoying the game as it unfolds. 
That's why we're watching a thriller. Like we want to know what happens next. We want that suspense, right? That's why we're watching it. As this game escalates, as these games escalate, I guess I should say, we find it fascinating. That's why we keep watching. We want to see how the game goes. We want to see who wins. And like I said, often in American movies, yeah, there's violence, but the protagonists usually win even if they've been brutalized and violated, you know, the victim escapes and they come out on top and they make it, right? We're not comfortable when evil triumphs. We're not comfortable when the victims lose the game. It's too nihilistic. It's too pessimistic. We want our violence, but we also want hope and we want a silver lining because I think it absolves us. It absolves us of our guilt over enjoying the game so much and enjoying the film so much and wanting to see the violence in the first place. Well, as long as nobody's really hurt, you know, as long as nobody really gets killed or traumatized or anything, they still come out on top. They still win. So it's no big deal. I do think we as American audiences kind of need this film. (laughs) We need a film like this. And I do wonder if that's why Hanukkah did the remake was maybe trying to reach the very audience or the very culture that maybe needed to think about some of these issues because we are exporting these films around the world like we are exporting the violent films and stuff to other countries it kind of originates with us like we have a really violent media and stuff like that and i know that people will come at me and say oh but the the crime the crime rate is at its lowest or something like that right people like to say that a lot well that might be true but that doesn't mean that there isn't violence still happening in different ways and it doesn't mean that there isn't a lot of violence in tv and films and and even what we're exposed to on the internet as long as violence exists and it's there it doesn't really matter to me what the crime rate is it's still an issue that we're consuming violence through media and that that should be critiqued and looked at. I also wanted to say about the egg scene, what's very compelling to me about it and unusual is the way that Georg, the father, kind of questions Anna when he arrives. And um, he's very clueless when he shows up. He's actually very passive in the film too, which is unusual um, to see a man who is so passive. She knows that these guys are up to no good. She knows something's wrong, but he doesn't really believe her at first. He's willing to hear these men out and to ignore Anna and her anger. Like she's being hysterical. She's overreacting. And he needs the whole story from these two strangers. It's a subtle thing, but it was intriguing to me and maybe says something about their marriage. It's kind of misogynistic, the way that women are often not believed or were accused of being too emotional or overreacting. Like she knows something's wrong and he is resisting it. And men do tend to stick with each other. That's just the truth. And they don't always listen to their partners or their wives. He wants her to explain why she's so upset. And she's like, something I like about Anna, she's not having it. She's like, look, I don't want them here. I shouldn't have to explain myself. It should be enough that I don't want them here. She wants them out. But by this 
but by the time all that's happening, they're already there. <laughs> they're not leaving. And once Paul gets the um, the golf club and hits Georg in the leg, the nightmare has begun. Like the nightmare is in full swing. The nightmare that we have chosen to watch as the audience, right? We've chosen it. <laughs> like we want to watch this nightmare truly unfold, right? I thought it, it was powerful when Georg asks Peter, he asks why he's doing this and Peter responds, why not? And I think that's a big part of the film. A lot of times with with evil or with like violence, we want to understand why. Why is somebody doing this? Some people would point to nature, some to nurture. It's I think it's a mixture of both. Some people would even point to like socioeconomic status, right? But the thing about Paul and Peter is that they're from the same class as Anna and Georg. They're not poor. They're not struggling. They don't need money. You know, that's not why they're doing it. They're from the same class as their victims. So there really is no explanation given in the film of why they're doing this. Because sometimes there is no explanation. I do think at times we want to bow on it. We want to understand it. Oh, it was this, this from childhood. It was this or that or whatever. And it's like, why not? The whole thing that Hanukkah is saying is sometimes there isn't a reason. Sometimes it's for the thrill of it. Sometimes it's for the pleasure and the power that they get out of it. And why are they doing it? Why shouldn't they do it? They can why not? They want to. They want to. Why should they stop themselves? You know, when men go and rape women, isn't that partly what they're doing? They can, and so they do it. They want to. They enjoy it, or they wouldn't do it. They get something out of it. And that's what's frustrating to me about when we talk about mass shootings, or like every time a mass shooting happens here in the United States, people are like, why'd they do it? Why'd they do it? Like, you know, with Adam Lanza in particular, who I think is just one of the like the worst person who ever existed. I'm gonna go that far besides Hitler, I guess. Why did he do it? Everybody wants to know why they did it. And I'm not saying there are not valid, I'm not saying there are not like psychological reasons or this or that. But I would also argue at the end of the day that why they do these mass shootings is because they want to and they can. And they go and they're able to get the guns and they're able to do it. They do it because they want to do it. Because they got something out of it. They want to commit violence. They want to hurt people. They get some kind of pleasure or enjoyment out of doing that. And sometimes maybe we're not willing to like accept that. Like why did Stephen Paddock, right, do the Las Vegas massacre? Why did Adam Lanza do Sandy Hook? Because they wanted to. Because they could. Because they chose to. And they got something out of it. Nobody made them. Why are you doing this? You know, why Why did you go commit a mass shooting? Why not? Why not? Sometimes there is no deeper explanation for it. It's because they wanted to. And I don't know if we always want to sit with that. That somebody did it because they enjoyed it. And it gave them something. That's why they did it. So the dogs killed... Anna goes and finds the dog in the vehicle. That's when Paul turns and winks at us. It's the first time in the film when we realize, oh, the rules are being broken. An animal has been killed. The fourth wall has been broken. We're being winked at. And we know that we're in uncharted territory here. Like, what's happening, right? And it's one of those ruptures, as Hanukkah called it. That's that's a big part of the film is all, all these moments when Paul talks to us. And we become implicated in the film. 
we're part of the film as viewers of it. I mean, if you think about it, does the film really exist if, if people don't watch it and people don't see it? Like we are part of the film. Hanukkah involves us and includes us through having Paul talk to us several times throughout the film and remind us you are watching a film and you're choosing to watch this and you're expecting certain things out of it and you're not going to get anything that you expect. You're going to have the dog die and you're going to have the sun die and everybody's going to die and there's not going to be a silver lining and good is not going to triumph over evil. <laughs> None of your expectations are going to be met by this film at all. And something that Hanukkah talked about in an interview was that he told Ulrich and Suzanne to play their parts like a drama. And then he told the actors playing Paul and Peter to play it as like a farce or a comedy. And when I watched the film the second time, I absolutely picked up on that. That in a way we're watching the collision of two films, right? It's very dramatic, with the family and then it's very farcical and funny with the killers. That's just something that I definitely, definitely picked up on with my second viewing. Uh, the comedic aspect of the killers underscores how un unfeeling and insensitive they are. There's no attempt to humanize them or make us relate to them at all. I don't know if Hanukkah wants us to relate to the killers really. But I do think he wants us to realize that when we are watching films like this, are we on the side of the victim or are we on the side of the killers? It's this weird thing where if there wasn't the, if the killers weren't there terrorizing the family, there wouldn't be a thriller. So are we really on the side of the victims or are we more interested in the killers? So we don't necessarily relate to them or anything, but the film, I think the film makes us think, think about that a little bit. If they weren't there, then we wouldn't be seeing all this and this nightmare wouldn't even be happening. So they're necessary to the film. The mother, Anna, is such a fascinating character to me in the film. You can see throughout the film how she's struggling to process everything. At times she puts her head in her hands. I think there's a scene where she does that. She looks drained. She looks shocked. She looks shocked. She looks exhausted. She looks just like, when will this end? Like what is happening? And all kinds of stuff like that. She's not overly emotional or demonstrative or anything like that. It's more interior. Like there's something interior going on with her of just the shock, the fear, the horror, the trauma. Like I really think that's what comes through her performance is the trauma of what's happening what she's watching unfold and how helpless and powerless she is. But at the same time, she's always trying to fight back, right? Like she's trying to free herself. She runs out of the house. She tries to get help. Even at the very end, before they throw her into the water, she's trying to cut her stuff. She's trying to, she finds a knife. She's the one that grabs the gun and shoots Peter before the rewind. She seems dejected and she seems depressed on the one hand, but she's also very active on the other hand. And everything is on her because Georg can't move. He can't walk on his own. He's completely debilitated and helpless. Any hope for them to survive is on her shoulders. And you feel the weight of it and the trauma of it 
But you also see this woman trying to fight back and trying to get out of it. And every time she tries to, she fails and she's she's knocked back down. So that performance is fascinating to me and just extraordinary, really. I have this list that I've made of my favorite um, female performances in films. Marion Cotillard in La Vie en Rose, for instance, or Jenna Rollins in Opening Night, Maria Falconetti in The Passion of Joan of Arc. So I have all kinds of different stuff on there of my favorite female performances. Julianne Moore in Safe. And I would absolutely put Suzanne Lothar for her performance in this film. I would put her on that list. I think her performance is just a powerhouse and brilliant. And it's physical. Like in that long scene where she's having to carry Georg, that was brutal. And she was, she was, that was a long take. And she was physically doing that with her body. She was carrying Ulrich. (laughs) that wasn't made up or something so it's it's a performance that comes through her face and through her body and you just feel the fear the terror the trauma the depression the exhaustion you just feel it like you just feel her performance it's powerful to me and at one time paul even turns to us and he says you're on their side aren't you and i was thinking are we (laughs) Are we really on their side as we watch this thriller in which they're being terrorized? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if we're on their side, right? But we feel for them. I, I think it's impossible for you not to feel for them, particularly Ulrich and Suzanne, like their performances, so visceral, so powerful. And you just feel for that family. You experience their pain along with them. And you experience the shock and just all those emotions, the helplessness, the grief. And like I said earlier, that scene where they have Anna Strip, Suzanne's performance is powerful in that too because we only see her face. Hanukkah makes a very deliberate decision to not show her naked and to not show her taking her clothes off. I think that was the right call and everything's on her face. The degradation, the loss of her dignity, everything that she's going through we just stay on her face we stay on like this extreme close-up as that's happening to her you just you feel the shame of it too and Georg as he's watching it he hangs his head in shame because he can't save her or help her they're so powerless you know they're just so powerless and that's frightening I think powerlessness is frightening to be in that kind of position. At one point, the son runs away. He gets a chance to to run out of the house. But as we know, that's a complete dead end. He ends up over at the house of the previous people who have been murdered. That's where they get the shotgun. Uh, Paul um, picks up the shotgun. And he ends up taking the son back to the house with a... with the mother and the father. At one point, Anna asks Peter, why don't you just kill us? And he replies, and I thought this was interesting, don't forget the entertainment value. We'd all be deprived of our pleasure. And I felt like that was like a really good moment, you know, Hanukkah kind of asking us to think about what we find entertainment, what what becomes entertainment, watching people being terrorized and all of that stuff. What does it mean when violence and murder do become entertainment? And the way that the murder of the son is handled was fascinating. We don't see that either. So the film, even though it is violent, 
and it is brutal. Hanukkah also withholds a lot of things. He doesn't show her nude body, right? He doesn't even show the murder of the dog. We only see the dog's body. And it's the same with the son. We hear this commotion in the living room. We don't see any of it that happens. The camera focuses on Paul in the kitchen, like about to make a sandwich. We hear screaming. We hear a gunshot. We just hear chaos. The long shot after the men, after the killers leave for a little while, but we know they come back, shows the little boy, little Georg, on the ground, the blood. We see the blood on the television screen. I thought that was a very interesting touch because often when we are watching violence on a television screen or any screen, the blood is inside the screen. The blood is in the image, right? The blood is never real. The violence and the um, horror are never real. They're always happening to somebody else. You don't have to touch it. You don't have to smell it. You don't have to feel it because it's in that box, It's in that television screen. It's in your laptop. It's in your cell phone. And you're protected from it. And so I thought it was interesting the way he showed the blood on top of the television screen. Because it's no longer inside. It's no longer in the box. The blood is on the television screen. The, The blood of this child who is murdered. Another rule that he breaks. The killing of a child. You never see that in mainstream films, right? we see that long shot. It's very powerful the way that this is filmed. This is a director who takes these issues seriously, who thinks about the way that he represents things and he feels a responsibility for that. This is a mother and father left with their dead child. Hanukkah made a very intentional decision to stay at a distance. He said it was too brutal to go close up. He said it was too much to even go near them and that he had to stay at a distance. He had to stay at a remove and show them that way. It would be too brutal to clo- to do a close-up. I do think this scene, it's very long. It's long the way that the egg scene earlier was long. I think this is a master class in acting. Anna is tied up. She hops into the kitchen to get a knife so she can free herself. But the father is immobile and he just begins to cry. It's like this primal shrieking over the death of his son. It's like a Greek tragedy in a lot of ways. And he's just losing it. Anna comes back and she holds him. She holds his head and he's just screaming and moaning. I don't think you always see this very primal expression of like grief in a film in this way. Like I, I, I found that very powerful when I was watching it. It's another way that Hanukkah makes us feel for the family. Like they're real to us. And we feel the we feel the violence and the suffering that's being inflicted on them and perpetrated against them. It's just unbearable. I would say this is like an unbearable I would say this is an unbearable film in a lot of ways. It's so unbearable to even watch it at times. Yes, it has the funny moments and the games and the fourth walls being broken and it's philosophical and intellectual and all this stuff. But what I focus on are the emotions in the film and all the emotion is in this family. It's the horror, the trauma, the grief, all of it in this family. And the actors bring that to life. The actors make that real and make it like and make it visceral to you. Because the the door is locked, the killer's locked the door, Anna has to go through the kitchen window and there's just different stuff. They're trying to get the phone to work. The damn phone doesn't work. And Georg is telling her to make a run for it. 
they're wasting too much time. He asks her to forgive him and she cries. She kisses him. She says she loves him. It's it's gut-wrenching to watch that, to watch her crying and not knowing if she's going to be able to find help for them or what's going to happen and knowing that she has to abandon him in order to save herself and to possibly save both of them. But she's not able to do anything. She gets out of the fence with the pliers flags down a vehicle eventually like the first vehicle she the first vehicle goes past her as you know the second vehicle that comes along is the killers and they come back with her and it's just um once again it I think what Hanukkah does with that of allowing her to get out of the house and get on that road he's breaking another rule he's breaking another expectation that we have we expect her to escape We expect her to survive, to go get help, to find a police officer, to find a neighbor. We have hope still. He keeps our hope alive with that and our hopes are dashed. The hope is gone. It's not there anymore. It's another way that Hanukkah subverts our expectations of the film. The killers get her and they come back. And in another scene, Paul looks at the camera. He has Anna tied up and all that and Georg's completely debilitated and Paul looks at the camera and says we're not up to feature length we're not up to feature film length yet is that enough you want a real ending with plausible plot development right (laughs) it's another way that he engages with the audience and like we know what you expect and we're not going to give you any of it I mean the truth is the game they were always going to lose the game the odds were always stacked against them even up to the end they continue with the games they make Anna choose how Georg will die off camera we hear the Georg uh screaming after he's been stabbed in that scene where she's once again this is another scene where Hanukkah withholds we don't see Georg being stabbed we only hear his cries we only hear his screaming and we see Anna's face as she's looking at it but we don't see it it's so interesting the way he filmed these scenes we look at her and we we don't see the violence we see her experiencing and witnessing the violence and there's something more powerful about that to me we see her hopelessness her shock her horror her heartbreak everything through her face I can't get over her performance in this film, particularly when she's in close-up. Paul's making her pray and telling her how to do it, and that's when she quickly grabs the shotgun and she shoots Peter. This is such a shocking moment of the film, right? But then Paul grabs the remote and rewinds the scene so that everything gets reversed. And then he takes the, he reverses the scene, and instead of her being able to shoot um, Peter, he takes, Paul takes the gun from her and no shooting occurs at all. It's like Hanukkah fucking with us. I do feel like this film is just Michael Hanukkah fucking with us for almost two hours. (laughs) But I appreciate it. I think it's an experimental film in that way. It's, It's an interesting immersive type of experience and in a way we're participating in it. It's it's just I don't know. I think it's a fascinating film, but he's definitely fucking with us, right? And I think we get annoyed and we get mad at him, but he's doing it for a reason, okay? (laughs) He's doing it for our own good. I think he's doing all these things to make us think. 
He's trying to make us think about the way that violence, suffering, death, pain are represented in film and in popular media. He is always going to withhold what we want. (laughs) Usually the audience is given what it wants. It wants hope. It wants the victims to triumph in the end. It wants the bad guy to be vanquished. That's what the audience wants. The audience doesn't want to have to confront brutal truths about life. That's not why people go into that movie theater when they want escapism and entertainment and excitement and something thrilling. That's why they've gone to a thriller, right? They don't want to be questioned. They don't want to be confronted. They don't want to be implicated in what's being shown on the screen. And Hanukkah just isn't going to give them that. Hanukkah is going to say, why are you here? (laughs) Why are you watching this? What are you doing? (laughs) I, I killed a dog. I killed a little boy. I'm I'm showing you some of the worst, most depraved behavior and you're still sitting there watching it. Why? What are you getting from it? Why do you keep watching this stuff, right? But of course he's making it, he's creating it, but he's very careful and responsible in the way that he's representing the violence by withholding it, not showing it to us, only showing us the aftermath of it or showing us the way that people witness it and how that affects them psychologically. And this is the one of the big scenes where he rewinds it. It's shocking. It's unexpected. I'm not sure when I first saw the film if I knew this was coming or not or if I'd heard about it. I can't remember. But it's brilliant. You think, oh, she's gonna kill him. She's gonna triumph. She's gonna make it. They're gonna be okay even though the dog's dead and the little boy's dead. They'll make it and and we can rest assured that good has triumphed over evil and that the comfortable things we expect will happen. And Hanukkah jerks it out of our hands and says, nope, you're not going to get that. The killer controls reality, but the killers control the situation. They have the power. I think that's part of him rewinding it too is obviously it breaks the fourth wall it's you know all of that stuff but in a way maybe it's symbolic or something the killers always have the power they have the power of life and death and they enjoy that power and he rewinds it because he creates the reality and they end up shooting Georg and they take Anna on the boat and they drop her over and they laugh they laugh after they drop her over. That part of the film haunted me a lot because there's a true crime case that I've been haunted by for years and years. I read a book about it, about this woman, her and her two daughters. This happened in the 90s. They lived on this farm and they'd never taken a vacation before and they went to Florida. They lived like on a farm in the Midwest and her and her two daughters went on a vacation to Florida and they met this man who offered to take them out on the water on his boat and unfortunately he was a rapist and a murderer. He raped the the daughters and the mother probably had to witness that and then he put he attached cement blocks or anchors or something to all of these people to the two daughters and the mother and he threw all three of them overboard when they were alive that story has always haunted me and I will never get over it ever they did eventually catch the man who did it 
His name was Oba, Oba Chandler. I do believe he's in prison now or he's possibly dead. I don't know. And so he was caught. Interestingly enough, it was his handwriting. He had written some directions or something and somebody, they did a billboard of his handwriting and someone that knew him recognized the handwriting and that's how they found him. It's just a heartbreaking, haunting case. And so when I saw the end of Funny Games where they threw her overboard, that is such a horrific thing to me, like on another level of horror to me. And so it was visceral for me when they just threw her over and laughed. And they were talking about going and getting some food. And, you know, if you think that a killer is going to sit there and cry over what he just did, that's not what happens. These men commit this violence and they do these acts because they want to. It's hard to confront that, I think. But I think Hanukkah, by making these killers laugh and enjoy it, and I think he's saying that this is this is how it can be at times. Like, these are, like, people who commit this kind of violence and suffering and pain, they enjoy it. They enjoy it. That's why they do it. He's not interested in humanizing these killers, right? He's interested in other things and in making us think about how violence is represented in the media and all kinds of things like that that I've talked about endlessly in this episode and then they go on to their next go on to their next victims to the people that they had met earlier in the film at one point that is all I have to say I really love the film I love how Hanukkah makes us part of it and he makes us think about all these really messy complicated things I loved the film and I still love it I think it holds up (laughs) over 20 years later. It's one that I will definitely be thinking about for a long time. That's the power of Hanukkah cinema. Like it just haunts you and stays with you and all this stuff. So anyways, I've gone on long enough. I'd like to give a big shout out to my wonderful patrons, Stephen, Peter, Spunden, Ellie, Travis, Pierce, Amir, Christine, Jenny, Lane, Haroon, Thomas, Kelsey, Aaron, Tyler, Juan, Teal, JD, Vanessa, Olivia, Jesse, and Michelle. Thank you so much for being patrons. You make the podcast possible. Until next time, keep watching great films. Bye for now.